Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. I want to do, I, I have two major themes I want to get through with you um, today. We'll see if I pull it off. Um, the first is kind of the agenda of the Deuteronomist and why we're getting the festival calendar here. We've gotten part of the festival calendar in Exodus, and we got a lot of it in what book? Who cares a lot about what happens on the holidays? The priests, Leviticus. So we got Exodus, we've got Leviticus. Why do we need a restatement of the festival calendar in Deuteronomy? The Deuteronomist has an agenda. So um, so we're going to look a little bit at Micha Goodman's analysis of uh, what the agenda of the Deuteronomist is vis-a-vis the holidays. Um, and then I want to look a little bit at um, just the concept alone that there is there is multivocality in the Torah from the earliest stages, but certainly we see it a lot more evidently with Deuteronomy that it is contradicting earlier texts in the Torah. So um, I, I think it's an important thing, so much so that Israel Knoll, uh, a professor of biblical studies that I have learned with at Hartman, who is amazing, um, an expert in the field, um, wrote a book called The Divine Symphony. Right? This is so important for biblical scholarship that to write a book called The Divine Symphony, it's making the argument that there has always been a plurality of voices and perspectives in the Torah. The Torah was never interested in harmonizing or unifying those voices. It needed to do so enough that the thing hangs together, but it never sought to silence or stifle previous traditions, other traditions, variant traditions, older traditions. Um, and it is we moderns who who have a problem with things not lining up and right being one argument, one perspective, one um, argument. Okay, so um, so those are the two um, things we're going to get done today, hopefully. Um, and so, first of all, we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit about Deuteronomy. So remember that the Deuteronomist. So we have we have our source material, but sitting before the final redactor of the Torah. Um, and remember, who are our sources? J, E, P, and D. Right? The Gaoist, the Elohist, the Priestly Offer, and the Author, and the Deuteronomist. Bert H is part of um, part of the P collection. Um, probably a different school, a different writer, but part of the P collection. So J, E, P, and D. D is our last source. But D doesn't stop at Deuteronomy. D continues into what comes after Deuteronomy? Joshua. Yeah. It continues into Joshua, and it continues into what we call D.H., the Deuteronomic history. So Torah decided to cut off here. D does not. Deuteronomy is the beginning of the Deuteronomic history that, that goes further. So we cut it off here, but that is a false, in some ways, a false cut off from the mission of D, right? The mission of the Deuteronomic author is to tell the history of ancient Israel as part of a reconstruction of Israelite religion. D is here to revolutionize the Israelite, what did I say? Religion. All right, so 
so P is interested in the cult. D is interested in a complete religious revival, a complete revolution of how the Israelites understood their relationship to space, time, the divine, etc. Two quick questions, I think. Uh, one is, do, does orthodoxy accept the same interpretation? No. And second, that was easy. And secondly, why do we not study the rest of this? Oh, the- here we go. So, Judith, like, I want to figure out how many ways you can ask this question until <laughs> you get the answer you like. We study on the lectionary cycle of each week studying the Parsha that the Jewish world is studying. We could obviously continue in a different class, find a different teacher. Um, it's like, it's, I, I don't find the Deuteronomic history nearly as exciting. It's history. This king, that king, this happened, then that happened, then this happened, then that happened. If you, if you want to know the history of ancient Israel, it's very helpful. So if Knoll wants to make a point about what P says versus what we know from Chronicles or from the Deuteronomic history, that's interesting. Only if you have an argument to make. For me, it's like the, the, the narratives that make up the mythology of the Pentateuch is what's interesting. And it's where we locate ourselves in terms of our Jewish conversation. The entire Jewish world is on this Torah portion. I don't want to be on Joshua when the rest of the Jewish world is reading this. So that's, that's a big part of it for me is peoplehood is I want, I want to locate our conversation within the broader universal Jewish conversation. Okay. All right. So the Deuteronomist, the dude, it's a hard word to say the Deuteronomist. What does Deuteronomy mean? Good. It's the second telling. It's the re, the repetition of the story, but funny that, it's not a retelling, right? It's it's actually a different version in many cases of events, but it calls itself a retelling. It's put in the mouth of Moshe. It's put in the mouth of Moses, right, as his final three speeches to the people. But it is absolutely a, a retelling that is not the same as what we saw when we got told the story. So so for a lot of people, Micha Goodman, he said, Deuteronomy is the last book of the written Torah and the first book of the oral Torah, right? So meaning Deuteronomy is the first commentary on Torah. Because if you're doing a retelling, any retelling is already interpretation. It's commentary. If, if you're not just telling the story the way we got it in Numbers or Exodus, if you're retelling it, you're already picking what you're going to talk about and what you're not. What you're going to say happened, because you can't do all of it all over again. That doesn't make any sense. So what you highlight, what you leave out, and this is what people pay careful attention to when we study Deuteronomy. What does the Deuteronomist leave out? What does the Deuteronomist put in? What does the Deuteronomist highlight? And what does the Deuteronomist change? Okay, so we're going to look at Deuteronomy 16. And I, I want you to already start thinking to yourself, What's different about this? And you may not even know. It's fine. I'm going to tell you. Don't worry. Um, but what? see if you notice anything different than what we studied when we studied the calendar before. Um, okay. So I want to tie this into the end of Deuteronomy 15 on purpose. Um, I'm starting here because this is one of the arguments that some folks make about why we have part of the liturgical calendar here. 
Dafka here. Why? Because let's look at what happens. Can you all at home see that? Yeah, that's it, right? Okay. You shall consecrate to your God all male firstlings that are born in your herd and in your flock. You must not work your firstling ox or shear your firstling sheep. You and your household shall eat it annually before your God in the place that God will choose. Verse 21 of chapter 15. But if it has a defect, lameness, or blindness, any serious defect, you shall not sacrifice it to your God. Eat it in your settlements. The impure among you, no less than the pure, just like the gazelle and the deer. Only you must not partake of its blood. You shall pour it out on the ground like water. Okay, look what comes next. Observe the month of Aviv and offer a Passover sacrifice to your God. For it was in the month of Aviv at night that your God freed you from Egypt. Okay, going back to 15. The Bechor, the firstling, is sanctified as belonging to God. You don't get to do what you want with it. You don't get to use it. You don't get to shear it to use its wool. You don't get to work it. It belongs, it is set aside for God, right? It is Kadosh. It is set aside. Then what does it say? In front of yud heh your God shall you eat it. What's that? What? Okay, it's dedicated to God. Before God shall you eat it. What's What does that mean? Right? Right. What does that mean? Well, some folks come to say 16 is telling you what it means. What is 16 telling you? Chapter 16. This is related to the Paschal offering. When is lambing happening? When they're weaned is in the spring. So people want to argue the reason Passover is here is to clarify what's happening with the setting aside of the firstborn of the flocks. That happens in the springtime. That is the animal that will be part of your Pesach offering. Or there's some connection there that we don't, that isn't preserved, but that there's a relationship and that's why it's here. Because otherwise we have no idea what it means, eat it. It doesn't say take it to the temple, sacrifice it. It just stands alone, eat it before Adonai your God. Some people want to say this is an explication of what that's talking about. All right. So, Because in the spring, God took y'all out of Egypt, right? Um, did we see, did we see this before? What, what did we see before? What we saw was Pesach and Chag Hamatzot. The Paschal Lamb and Chag HaMatzot, the festival of Matzot. We saw that before. We did not see before anything about going out in the spring. Nothing. This is Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is introducing the fact that this whole business of the Pesach and that um Doing it in Chodesh HaAviv is because that is when we left Egypt was in Aviv, was in the spring. The month was called Aviv. In the Babylonian calendar, the month was Aviv. 
You shall slaughter the Passover sacrifice for your God from the flock and the herd in the place where Adonai will choose to establish the divine name. Where's that? In the place where God will choose to establish God's name. Well, that's in Jerusalem. Uh Thank you. So it is in Jerusalem. More specifically, Bert. In the temple. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. So you now we get, we've had this before. We've had the Paschal Lamb. We've had Pesach. We've had the sacrifice. What do we learn from Deuteronomy? It's to beware. In the temple. Before, wasn't it in their homes, the Paschal sacrifice? In Egypt, it was in, in their homes. For Deuteronomy, we are talking about the temple. This is a radical move. We read right over it. If you were at home reading this, Judith, in your bed with the nightstand light on, you'd read right over that, right? Um, in the place that God will, because we see that a lot. We're used to that language from Deuteronomy. What we don't pay attention to often is the fact that this is a radical move. This move is the centralization of sacrifice. They used to be able to sacrifice at local shrines. And the local priesthood would serve at the local shrine. So you could take your sacrifice and go to your, you know, Brentwood location and offer your sacrifice. If that's too far, this because there's so much traffic, you go to Santa Monica. <laughs> right? But you had local shrines to pick from, and your local priests served at your local shrines. Okay. Deuteronomy comes along and wipes out local sacrifice, lifts up the temple, lifts up, this is the place God will choose for God's name to dwell, and that's where you're going to go for the three pilgrimage festivals that we're going to see explained uh, here. So I want you to think, as we look through the rest of this uh, liturgical calendar, I want you to think to yourself, what does that move do? Why might the Deuteronomist, that school, want to centralize worship, what place does it give the temple in the people's lives, and what place does it give sacrifice and ritual in the people's lives? All right, be thinking about that as we move forward. All right. No, 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 no. You shall not eat anything leavened with it, meaning with the Pesach offering. For seven days thereafter, you shall eat unleavened bread, bread of distress, right? Lechem oni. For you departed from the land of Egypt hurriedly, so that you may remember the day of your departure from the land of Egypt as long as you live. Right? So this is what we talked about at the women's Passover event. Is it Lechem Oni? Is it the bread of affliction? Or is it the bread of freedom? Which one is it? Both. Mm-hmm. All right. For seven days no leaven shall be found with you in all your territory, and none of the flesh of what you slaughter on the evening of the first day shall be left until morning. You are not permitted to slaughter the Passover sacrifice in any of the settlements that God is giving you. In case it wasn't clear, off limits is the Brentwood site, the Santa Monica site. You have to go to San Diego. All right. Actually, San Francisco. For many people living in the south or living in the north, going to Jerusalem would have been like going to San Francisco. Um, so why is the central temple in Jerusalem described so vaguely as the place that God shall establish if it's already been established? 
as one central. Because this is all being put in the mouth of Moses before they cross into the land. It's make-believe. Got it. It's like us writing something saying what, this is what America stands what for we? and putting it in the mouth of George Washington. George Washington said, uh, no, that was Burt Kleinman. <laughs> but we're going to say that George Washington said it because that has a little more credibility in some circles, Burt. <laughs> that has more credibility than what Burt Kleinman says. That's what the Deuteronomist did. That's what you used to do. You put it in the mouth of someone Else? So it was known that there would be one central, but it hadn't been established or explained to the Jewish people. Okay, okay. So what, this is where it gets confusing for, for people who haven't heard this, me say this seven million times. It's very confusing. You have Torah history. So the story as we get it, there's no temple. They're not even in the land of Israel yet. And then there's real history lived history, what actually happened. This is written when they're already living in Jerusalem with a temple. It's put in the mouth of Moses before crossing into the land. There's a time lag. I mean, it's just a completely, it's fiction. It's fiction that it happened in the desert. It got written when they were, Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later when they're living in the land with the Jerusalem temple. So they know what this means. The people who are hearing Deuteronomy know what it means because they have a temple. But it it pretends to be the words of Moses that they found. Does that make sense? Isn't this like a political justification of the priesthood at the temple? I mean, it's, it's the central against the... It, it's not a it's not a justification. They had justification, so it's a different. What's the move? All right, so let's let, let's look at the text, and then we'll come back to the agenda of the Deuteronomist. So, in case it wasn't clear, you can't sacrifice in any of your settlements. This is new. This is new. We look at it as oh, okay. They just eradicated the Brentwood. Emergency clinic. They just eradicated the Santa Monica emergency clinic. Think about what that means if you break your leg, right? Or you're afraid you broke your leg, right? We, it seems small. It is huge what this means. And we'll, and we'll talk more. Okay. But the place where your God will choose to establish the divine name, which has already been done. They're already living with it for hundreds of years. There alone shall you slaughter the Passover sacrifice in the evening at sundown, the time of day when you departed from Egypt. That's new. You shall cook and eat it at the place that your God will choose. And in the morning, you may start back on your journey home. So what does that mean? You can start back on your journey home. What does that imply? You had to journey there. That's what changed. Now, to offer their Pesach sacrifice, they have to come to Jerusalem. From San Francisco, they have to come to LA or the other way, whatever I said, right? It's a, it's a long trip, a long and sometimes dangerous trip in order to offer your Passover sacrifice. This is a huge move. After eating unleavened bread six days, you shall hold a solemn gathering for your God on the seventh day. You shall do no work. This is why Yontif, we have Yontif at the end of, of Passover. You shall count off seven weeks. Start to count the seven weeks when the sickle is first put to the standing grain. So once the sickle 
is put to the grain for the harvest, you're going to count off seven weeks, seven sets of seven days. Then you shall observe the feast of Chag Shavuot, the feast of weeks for your God, offering your free will contribution according as your God has blessed you. This is new. This is added by the Deuteronomist. However prosperous you have been, that's what you will offer on Chag HaShavuot. That's new. Um, also, this what's new here is when is when are we told you start counting? It's not at Pesach. Ha 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 ha. So right, that's different. That's different. This is a different tradition. This is a tradition that Shavuot moves on the calendar because it is dependent upon when you put the sickle to the grain. That's going to be a different time every year. And the idea that this is the celebration of the Ten Commandments, is that rabbinic? Yes. Yes. You shall rejoice before your God with your son and daughter, your male and female slave, the family of the Levite in your communities and the stranger, the fatherless and the widow in your midst at the place where your God will choose to establish the divine name. Who has to travel to Jerusalem? Everybody. Everybody. There's no mention of a machine. There are no car seats. Everybody. Your 17 children, four who are still nursing. Everybody. Think about that. <laughs> right? That is, that is quite something to order everybody to come to the central place of sacrifice now on this holiday, on these holidays. Although it doesn't say that about Pesach. So because this was was written at a later time to rationalize coming to the temple, was there something happening historically later that they said, wait, we got to put this in writing. Were they afraid of cults? Were they afraid of the dissolution because people weren't coming in? Good. Good, Harvey. Let's ask that question in a second. Bear in mind that you were slaves to hold. I want that question. That's where we're going after this. Uh, bear in mind that you were slaves in Egypt and take care to obey these laws. After the ingathering from your fleshing, fresh, threshing floor and your vat, you shall hold the feast of booths for seven days. All right. So, so Sukkot now we are told is after the in gathering from your threshing floor and your vat. So the fall harvest, right? You're going to hold this Chag HaSukot for seven days. We're going to look at a source that's going to show us it wasn't called that before. Wasn't called that. Okay. You shall rejoice in your festival with your son and daughter, your male and female slave, the family, the Levite, the stranger, the fathers, and the widow in your communities, meaning everybody. Including, including goodly, your slaves and the fatherless and the widow, meaning including the completely disenfranchised, the weakest of your communities comes with you and eats it with you. Deuteronomy talked about Shabbat. Remember, we have Shabbat somewhere else. And what is Shabbat about in Exodus? 
What is it about? It's about you're going to imitate God who who created the world and rested. What does Deuteronomy say about Shabbat? Why do you keep Shabbat? Because you're going to imitate God who what? Got you out of Egypt. Who freed you from Egypt. So you're going to equalize the status of everybody in your household. Work keeps everybody opposed to the Marxist view. Work keeps everybody stratified. What is the democratizing, equalizing factor? Rest. Everyone's the same the day we rest. The day we work, it goes back to being stratified, right? So you will imitate God who freed you from slavery. You will free your people and you will all be the same in rest. Same with these holidays. You will all go and you will all eat. It doesn't matter who the lamb belongs to. If you're part of that household, you get part of that meat. In spite of the later tradition, orthodox tradition, that males and females wouldn't pray together, here there's no distinction. No, at of all. course not. Of course, yeah. not at all. Of course the not. The men, the women, the wives. Because it's not about praying. There's no mechitza. It's not about praying. There's no need for a mechitza. Yeah. They're not doing anything. They're giving it to the priests. The priests do everything and give it back to them. What are they doing? They're eating. That's that's the commandment. Bring the food. Let the priests do what they have to do. Abracadabra. And you eat it. That that's all they do is have steak. Off the grill. That's all. There's no, why would you separate them? They're, they're not doing anything but eating. But considering the very male orientation of most of Torah, this is different in the sense it's completely egalitarian in terms and of male and female. Who's that about? Deuteronomist. Yes. Yes. So who does Deuteronomy want to make sure gets included? The, everyone. But who are we, who would normally be excluded? The week that includes women, children, slaves, orphans, widows who have no men, right? That's why it says the fatherless. It's not an orphan because it's not that the mother's dead. If you have a mother, it doesn't do you much good in the ancient world. You're not protected. So it's the fa- it's when you have no men. All right. So it's the weak that are included specifically by the Deuteronomist. Harvey, we're going to talk about why. All right. No, 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 no. You shall hold a festival in the place that God will choose for you. God will bless all your crops and all your undertakings. And vehayita ach sameach. You will be only joyful. Right? Remember this? Vesamachta bechagecha vehayita ach sameach. And three times a year on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, on the Feast of Weeks, and on the Feast of Booths. All your males shall appear before your God in the place that God will choose. They shall not appear before God empty-handed. So do women and children not come on Passover? Males have to show up three times a year. We only get the women and children and everybody in certain circumstances, right? We get it here with uh, with um, Sukkot, and we get it at the other one up there, right? Um, but but one, it doesn't say that about. Okay. So a variant tradition. But, but this is new. Requiring everyone to travel is new. But each with his own gift, according to the blessing that your God has bestowed upon you. Okay. Very good. We all here? Everybody good? Everybody home? You okay? Quick question. Yeah. All right. The Hebrew yes. uses yatom. Does yes. that mean uh, orphan or does it mean fatherless? Fatherless. So it doesn't... It, 
Orphan is really not a good translation, as no, in Tadishiaton. It's really not. It's a really bad translation. Okay. Um, so, all right. If you require everybody to come to the Jerusalem sanctuary, Harvey, start down the road you were going. Well, as as with ancient Rome, once things get spread out too much, then things start breaking away. You get cults, you get factions and things. So one thing to do is say, y'all got to come in and hear the word from here because it's real. So it's real. If it, if it happens it's, from the centralized authority, it's, it's from God. It's what? It's from God. It, it has the authority. Right. It has authority because it's got the blessing of the folks who are in charge. Right. So that's what makes it authentic yeah. is we say so. Right. So, so these were priests there. And, and when we, when we think of priests, priests are intermediaries to God. Are, we're, they're not Judaism. No. Priests are the functionaries that carry out the instructions on behalf of the Israelites. Mm-hmm. Because the Israelites are not experts at slaughter. Um, so, right, so the, a regular Israelite doesn't know from how to shecht an animal. A, a, a regular Israelite doesn't know all of the instructions about sacrifice. The system, the cultic system, was that the priests are the experts and they carry out all of this stuff on behalf of the regular schlepper Israelite. In that sense, they are intermediaries because they mediate between the nuclear power of the sacred, God's presence, and the zappage that will occur if that is not treated the way it's supposed to be. But it's intermediary in a protective way, not not the way we think about it having grown up in a Christian culture where you don't have access to God only the priest does, and you have to go through the priest. You have to go through the priest in the ancient Israelite cult so that you don't get obliterated, <laughs> right? They take the risk on themselves so that you are protected, and you get full credit for everything, right? But they're going to take all the risk on themselves. George? A cynical interpretation is a cynical... What, from you? No. <laughs> what did he say? It's a centralization... <laughs> Okay. Okay. So centralization, building on what Harvey said, centralization of power. What does that do? Why do you do that? Why do you centralize power? Okay. So what might be going on that you would want to centralize power? I think what Harvey said is right. So you don't have separation and cults. (laughs) But y'all are thinking forward. If I don't want cults to develop, I should centralize worship. Go the other way. What caused the centralization of worship? Israelites misbehaving. Or Israelites doing what they wanted to do at their local shrine. You know, in Brentwood, if you want, on the side, you can make a little offering to Asherah just to cover all your bases. And if you go to Dan in the north, you can make an offering to Baal. Just in case, you know, like Yahweh, sure, sure, yeah, absolutely the big guy. But, you know, Baal helped my cousin a lot when he was sick. So I'm going to Don to make my offering because I can slide a little something over to the bull god, right? That's what's happening. Syncretistic worship is happening in local shrines. 
This is a religious fundamentalist revolution. D. D is going to be fundamentalist. Back to mm-mm. no funny business, no monkey business. And the only way we can be sure that's not happening is that we centralize worship here where we can keep an eye on it. And only our priests and only what we decide will be happening. That is how Israel we will be protected from what? From other gods. And ultimately is protected from what? Other we read gods. this last week, people. Other from gods. Exile. Oh, exile. The Deuteronomist is very concerned with exile. The Deuteronomist is very concerned that if this doesn't happen, they will be decimated and carried off as slaves. Josiah, the king under whom this is found, the scroll is found, believes this wholeheartedly, that if they don't do this, they will be destroyed. This, the, Some people put this post-exilic, post-destruction of the first temple. How much later or during what time do we stop using lamb for Pesach because we don't have to sacrifice anymore for Pesach and consequently lamb is seldom served at Pesach it's usually beef some people eat lamb for Pesach Davka. that's what they serve on Pesach certain rabbis didn't want lamb served because they didn't want it to be mimicking right. God forbid the sacrifice right because we don't have sacrifice. And when did that when did that happen? I remember there it's was It's not it's not universal. That's what I'm saying. Some people eat lamb on Pesach. We came to the point where God said, "I don't want your sacrifices of meat. I want your sacrifices in action." In God didn't say that. Who said that? A priest. No. Prophet. The prophets. That's why we don't read the prophets. <laughs> Because <laughs> I want to go back to eating meat. I want a hamburger. All right. So the prophets, to your point, Judith, who do the prophets care about? Who do the prophets care about? I don't want your meat. I don't want your sacrifices. What do I want? What does God want according to the prophets? Unfetter the chains of the shackled. Feed the hungry. Clothe the naked. Who is the prophet worried about? Not service. They're worried about the weak. They're worried about the vulnerable. They're worried about who's not being taken care of in the system that cared so much about sacrifice. What is D starting? It looks like D is lifting up the temple and lifting up the priesthood and lifting up sacrifice. What is D actually doing? And actually starting, says Micha Goodman, the desacralization of the rest of Israel except Jerusalem. What is D actually doing? Reducing the importance of sacrifice. Because you can't do it anymore in Brentwood and in Santa Monica. They used to have access all the time to sacrificial meat, to the sacrificial ritual. They used to have access to the priesthood. They used to have access to the cult. What happens when you centralize worship? You cut off people's access to the cult. Oh, no. 
you would take it, yes, three times a year and shlamim and your chatat, your sin offering, your peace offering, your offering of well-being. If you can't offer sacrifice anywhere but Jerusalem, you now have cut out 90% of sacrifice. So it looks like it lifts up the temple worship, the, I'm mean, not the worship, the temple ritual, sacrifice. It looks like it lifts all that up because now it's going to happen at this big celebration in Jerusalem. Micha Goodman says it's doing exactly the opposite. They depended too much, thinks the Deuteronomist, on the sacrifices. What That's why Deuteronomy says, take your little ones, your women, the orphan, the stranger, your slaves, because you have to be more conscious of who's included, not what you're doing, the ritual, the eating, the sacrifice, the priests, the incense, the blah, 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 the trappings. Who does this lay the groundwork for? The prophets. The prophets are saying the same thing. They're saying there's corruption in the temple. One of our prophets was famous for criticizing the corruption in the temple. Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth was a prophet saying, y'all are messing the whole thing up. You're forgetting about who God really cares about. God doesn't care about your sacrifices while you have corrupt business practices. While you keep people in the cycle of poverty because you won't pay their student loans. This is what God cares about. So Deuteronomy is making a radical move to eliminate sacrifice so that it pulls back the power of the ritual for the people. Yeah? Okay. So if that's true, then this whole religious reform is not about a religious reform that's going to focus on the religious side of the cult practice. It's Dafka doing the opposite. It's desacralizing most of the people's um, experience of the ritual, of, of, of eating meat, of all of those things. Somebody at home wanting to say something? Is somebody trying to say something at home, or are you just unmuted? Okay. Let me just along, see. Along with what you were just saying about He's, the fatherless. No, last week's verse, there was a part we didn't read that said, "What is it that God requires of you?" And Moses says, "Walk in God's ways," and then it explains what God's ways are. And it says, upholds the cause of the fatherless and the widow, befriends the stranger, providing him with food. So that is already present here. Yes. That's what God wants. So that's exactly. So D is leaning hard into how do we keep the covenant? Because the covenant is what matters. And it just kind of says, in the place that God will call, in the place that God will cause God's name to, to sneaking in there, how are we going to achieve a focus on the covenant and your behavior vis-a-vis the covenant? How are we going to do that? We're going to take away worship everywhere else. <laughs> like, right? And so now, right, what do they have to focus on? If they're not sacrificing locally, what do they have to focus on? Living just and loving each other and, and holy lives by, right? Economic fairness. And what we didn't read today was Shemitah and Yovel, the concepts of 
resetting the whole economic system every so often. You know, the, the land rests every, how often? Right. And then, um, and then Jubilee, right? So all of this release and all of this resetting says poverty becomes systemic. Families get trapped in a cycle of poverty. And the only way, says Torah, to deal with that is you reset the whole thing. You take it away from the rich and you give it back to the original owner. Done. Resets it. You don't have to like it. That's what's going to happen. It's going to be reset. You lived on good land. You had good rain. You had a lot. You figured out what to do with it. Good for you. It goes back. You don't get to keep it forever. Your generations don't get to be that rich forever because it's systemically unfair, says Torah. So that's where D is wanting to lean in. And to do that is pulling back the people's ability to access other parts of the religious tradition, the central parts, right, of of the cult. Okay. Um, and uh, Micha then with us this summer made this incredible argument. All right, it's too much. I'm not going to go there. Right. <laughs> he has this whole teaching about... Um, about the art, remember when we talk about the Mishkan, we talk about the tabernacle. What do we talk about? What's, what's the point of the tabernacle? What's the focus of the tabernacle? What's the tabernacle built around? What's in the Holy of Holies? The ark. What happens over the ark? What happens right above the ark? Why is that so important? The cherubs. And what happens? The presence of God. The presence of God is there, right? It's God's throne. From that place, God speaks to Moshe. So it is God's presence on the ark that the entire Mishkan, the the tabernacle, is built around. And later that's understood to be the temple, right? The Jerusalem temple has the ark in the Holy of Holies. The whole business is built around the ark. Because the ark is the throne of God. God's presence comes down on the ark. They carry the ark to battle, right? Because they're going to carry God with them to battle, right? So the ark is the whole point. That is the focus because that is God's presence. It is on the ark. Okay. What we know, Micha tells us, and then he quotes the sources, like Chronicles are one of those books that you want to read. Um, he quotes one of those texts that says, we, we got a list of what came back to Jerusalem after the exile from the first temple. Guess what's missing from that list? The ark. Meaning, the second temple never had an ark. Think about when you've been to Israel, if you've been to Israel, or even if you've seen a picture of the the reconstruction of Herod's temple, right? This massive complex, massive complex, hugely successful. The second temple was hugely successful. And there's no ark in the Holy of Holies. And Micha Goodman makes the argument that the people, it's not that the people did not believe in the ark. That wasn't the problem or the power of the temple ritual. It's that they believed it too much. They believed that the ark and God's presence on the ark would protect them. And so they got lazy, right? Well, if God's ark is there, well, what do I have to worry about? And so he says, 
The second temple, which was this hugely successful project, is a temple without an ark to start preparing the people for Judaism without a temple. So that move of there is no ark right there, and they knew that there's no ark there, but yet we still have this whole temple and we still come and we still do all this stuff. It was a way to, that it wound up preparing the people to have a relationship with the divine without a temple, which is what we have now. So even within what we just read, guess what? There's a whole lot of discussion and a whole lot of arguing about how this got put together, why it got put together this way, what the heck is going on. And it takes two verses from our Torah portion and claims they are the original here and that the other verses are added to explicate and are a later addition. Okay, so those two verses that seem to sum up everything at the end of our liturgical calendar actually says uh, many uh, who are discussing this in the scholarly literature are actually the earliest source and the the explicated stuff about those holidays that came before those summary two lines are are a later explication um, and a later tradition. This article, you have it at home. You can just open it in another tab if you want to look at it fully. Um, it's going to walk through all of the differences between Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and then the differences within Deuteronomy. If you're interested in what's going on, what are the motivations, what's the actual goal, who's writing, why do we think that, this is a great article to, to get at that. We're not going to do a lot of it, but I do want to lift up a little bit to show you how scholars know, right, that, that these are different variant traditions and different variant um, voices, all in front of the final redactor. Okay. So look at page one, and you see uh, the festival calendar in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 16 began as a short version of the calendar in Exodus 23, as it was expanded to clarify and adjust its details. So from those last two lines to the, the lines before them that we just read, um, it merged its springtime matzot festival with the Pesach offering, which was originally connected to the consecration of firstborn animals. So already that's a, that's a claim, right? That, that we have the firstborn animal text because that's what the Pesach was originally attached to. An offering of one of the firstborn of the flock. Then you had a whole nother Chag HaMatzot business. You had a whole nother festival that was the new grain. How have you heard me talk about this before? Those of you, Learned this with me. How have you heard me talk about this before? Why do we have a Pesach lambing thing and a matzot wheat festival? Why do we have two springtime Israelite like things? Semi nomadic pastoralists versus agriculture settled farmers. They are two different traditions. They are two different peoples. They are two different origins. They are two different ways of looking at the world. Semi-nomadic pastoralists are going to offer their God from the first of their flocks so that the flocks continue to be 
fruitful because that is the pagan way of understanding how ritual is efficacious. You mimic what you want happening up there by what you do down here. So you offer of the first of the flocks back to the flock God, the ram God, the sheep God, the cow God, so that the cow God will give you more cows. If you are a farmer, the springtime is what harvest? The wheat harvest. If you're only going to eat of new grain, what do you not have? You do not have sourdough. If you're eating only new grain, you have no sourdough, which means you have unleavened stuff. So if you're eating only new grain, only new flock, right? This is a pagan way that you make sure next crop is going to be abundant is you give some back and have practices related right to that, offering it to the the agriculture god, um, rain god, sun god. There, yes, there's the matzah god and the and the paschal lamb god. They were they were different in the pagan world. The Israelites each now have one of those going on that they're attached to. And what this is arguing is Deuteronomy for the first time puts them together. Right here. It happened in our Parsha, people. Right here. This is where for the first time they're put together. Pesach and Chag Hamatzot. Right? And then remember, Rosh Hashanah happens in which month? The first day of the seventh month will be a day of blasts, which means New Year moved. New Year was not. It was Rosh Hashanah that we call Rosh Hashanah wasn't Rosh Hashanah. The day of blasts was in the seventh month. Yom Kippur was in the seventh month. When was, if it was the seventh month, when was the first month? The spring. We changed it after the Babylonian exile. No, 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 no. Okay, so the author of these verses, end of that second paragraph, created this calendar by revising an older festival calendar in Exodus 23, 14 through 17, part of the so-called covenant collection. So on the left, you get Deuteronomy 23. On the right, you get what we just read. You get Deuteronomy, right? Three times a year. Right? What do you see in Exodus? You show the feast of eating unleavened bread for seven days, as I have commanded you, standing by itself. Yes? At the set time of the month of the Aviv, for in it you went forth from Egypt, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Look on the right. Three times a year all your males, males shall appear before you, before your God in the place that God will choose on the feast of Matzot, on the Feast of Weeks, and on the Feast of Booths. So it goes on to compare what is happening here. Go to your next page. Three times a year is the same, right? You're on page two, right? Three, three times a year remains the same, but the deity has a different designation in Deuteronomy. It's not the Lord Yudhei It is, as it is in Exodus, Right? It is just, it is Yudhei Vafei, your God. So a, a slightly different designation of the deity. And the big thing that we've been talking about, cultic centralization. Yeah? Um, timing. The passage in Exodus states the timing of each of the festivals, the month, 
um, or new moon of the Aviv, the first cut of the harvest, and during the ingathering of produce at the end of the year, Deuteronomy just says their names. And then we get an uh, explication of the differences under festival names. We get the differences in what Exodus calls these holidays and what Deuteronomy calls these holidays. Again, this is very technical. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. I want you to just see what biblical scholars lift up when they're trying to understand different layers of the text. This is one of the things they do. It's not called the same thing, meaning it's probably a variant tradition. It originates some other way than the holidays we have here. Um, so the feast of the early harvest, Chag HaKatsir, becomes Shavuot, right? The feast of ingathering, Chag HaAsif, becomes Chag HaSukot, right? So these are clearly different ways of, of getting at these holidays. Um, and so you have that. Then you have uh, the required contribution, both, right, in Exodus and Deuteronomy. Um, and then... The reinforced tithe requirement. Okay, and here's a summary, essentially, of the article. Um, <clears throat> the centralized festival calendar in Deuteronomy 16 and verses 16 and 17, those two verses at the end, turns out to be a self-contained, well-composed, uh, well-composed unit whose content is completely explained by its use of Exodus 23 and by its context among the centralization laws of Deuteronomy. This reception and reformulation was a process of inner biblical exegesis. That is, the interpretation of an earlier biblical text by a later biblical text. So what this scholar is saying is saying, even within the Torah itself, we have evidence of inner biblical exegesis. One text, a later text, coming to interpret an earlier text, even within the Torah itself. The anonymous assemblers and editors of the Torah doubtless could have bequeathed us a different book, free of all contradictions and tensions. The editors recognize that God's word is not uniform, but that God speaks in many voices and people hear God in many ways. They did not want to mar the divine revelation nor detract from its fullness, so they created a pluralistic book, which contains a variety of conceptions, a variety of customs, and a variety of laws, and passed this rich variety down to us in the process. They understood that the Torah does not have only one entrance, but rather has many. Their actions paved the way for the continuation of multivocality and variation in later generations. The multivocal editing of the Torah set the tone for Jewish literature. The Torah starts with a machloket, with a debate between two contradictory accounts of creation, the priestly tradition in Genesis 1 and beginning of 2 and the J account in Genesis 2 through 3. The editors put them side by side, since each of them, since in each of them there is divine truth. The editors of the Mishnah followed suit. This most important legal collection of post-biblical Jewish law starts with a debate about the appropriate time for reciting the Shema in the evenings. And the controversies continue, for all rabbinic literature is based 
on debate. The editors of the Mishnah and then of the Talmud followed the model of the Torah. They put side by side different and contradictory views. They felt that all of them were the word of the living God. Right, Emelinda? Um, I think Israel Canole makes a beautiful point that they weren't trying to harmonize the different variant traditions, says Knoll. They valued the fact that we have variant traditions and that we are, I, my gloss on it is, and that we are big enough to hold lots of different ways of seeing things, lots of ways of experiencing things, and still call ourselves one people. And it was something the rabbis continued to value, so much so that all of their literature is based on arguing on seeing things differently, on interpreting things differently. If they didn't, the Talmud would not need to be written on pages this big, and it would not be the incredibly big um, collection, voluminous, literally, uh, collection that it is. Um, and Knoll and many of us take great pride in the fact that even though some people want to make Torah a fundamentalist text, um, that is a unified understanding of the will of God. That is simply not how the editors have ever treated it. And it's certainly not how the rabbis went forward. And we stand on their shoulders. May we be worthy uh, of folks who trusted us to hold many viewpoints, many different opinions, many different ways of looking at things, still calling ourselves the Jewish people. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.